Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. Your Bible or your app, that is. Pastor Mark will be preaching from this text this morning. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of God. Well, I want to welcome any visitors we have. I know I've seen some sprinkled throughout the auditorium this morning, so I hope you feel welcome here. Um, If you're just in visiting family for Thanksgiving, uh, thanks for coming out and joining us and gathering with us here this morning. We're making our way through the letter of First Peter, and we start chapter four this morning. So, as Derek read, verses four through six, verses one through six of chapter four, rather, will be our focus this morning. But before we dive in there, let me lead us briefly in prayer again. Father, we pause one more time and say to you that unless the Holy Spirit come and fall. Everything is in vain here this morning. So we ask that you would send him, that he would come. In Jesus' name, amen. While the most successful people in the world know what it is to fail profoundly and learn from it deeply. In fact, many consider the prerequisite to success to be accumulated failure. Sir Winston Churchill said that success is the ability to go from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm. Thomas Edison, you know him, inventor of the light bulb, said, I have not failed. I just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Michael Jordan said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. We don't hear about those. He says, I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Perhaps no one knew what it was to fail deeply and learn profoundly than the Apostle Peter, the author of this letter. Do you remember this incident from Mark chapter 14? And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And he denied it. 
saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And it's in today's text that Peter is calling us to do what he failed at. He is calling the people to whom he is writing to arm themselves and to prepare themselves to suffer with and for Jesus. What amazes me about that is the fact that Peter is saying this, the same Peter who struggled in his own life with doing what he's calling others to do. And perhaps it's that failure that most qualifies him to speak into our lives this morning. The theme of this passage is this, verses one through six, that in order to be ready for suffering, which is what Peter is calling the people to whom he is writing and to us to be ready for, in order to be ready for suffering, we need to be resistant to sinning and reminded of our salvation. So that's my outline. Let me kind of unpack that thesis. That in order to be ready for suffering, we need to be resistant to sinning and reminded of our salvation. So first point, be ready for suffering. Peter begins by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, the last couple of weeks, Jonathan has been walking us through the second half of chapter three, which is where Peter begins talking about Jesus and his sufferings, all of his work on the cross. Remember verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Christ's suffering has been at the forefront of Peter's thinking as he's been writing this letter. And now all of a sudden, he says to the readers, just as Christ suffered and prepared himself for suffering, so we need to prepare to suffer because we walk in the steps of Christ. Now, the word arm is very important here. It's a military term that denotes preparedness, being ready not just being responsive to suffering when it comes, but actually being prepared for it, putting on a suit, so to speak, armor that is fitted for suffering. Peter has already spoke of this needs once in this letter. If you remember 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, if you want to turn back there, 1 Peter 1, 13, Peter uses similar languages to what we see here in chapter 4. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this theme of being prepared for suffering is not just being introduced here in chapter four. He's already been talking about it. And he won't conclude here in chapter four because later in chapter four, he's gonna talk more about it. Chapter four, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, why does he have to write that verse? because he's already told us twice to be prepared for it. So when it comes, don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange when it starts happening to you that you start suffering with and for Jesus, because I've written to you 
to make you ready for it. Now, it's important to ask this question. What specific form of suffering is being referenced here by Peter? What does he have in mind when he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking? In other words, get ready to suffer too. What's he talking about there? Well, in chapter one, he, he talks about us being grieved by various trials. So I don't want to limit suffering. Well, I do want to limit suffering a little bit, but not dogmatically. I don't want to say this is the only kind of suffering that Peter's thinking about. I'm going to say this is the main kind of suffering Peter's thinking about, and there are other forms of suffering that are included as well. But what is the main kind of suffering being referenced here? I believe it has to do with the things that people will, people will say to and about us because we follow Jesus. It's verbal abuse and sometimes physical abuse, but verbal abuse. Now, where do I get that from? Well, I get it from the immediate context here. If you notice chapter five or, or chapter four, verse four, right at the end, after Peter says, you don't do these kinds of things and what's the result? They malign you. They say things about you that are hurtful. But he's also in chapter one, sorry, not chapter one, chapter three, verses 16 and 17, he puts the idea of suffering and slander or maligning together. Notice that with me. Chapter three, verse 16 and 17, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, note that word, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it's better to suffer for doing good. Underline that word. So suffering and slander. Suffering and having people revile your good behavior in Christ. That's the suffering that Peter's thinking about here. So when he says, arm yourselves, prepare to suffer, he says, if you follow Jesus, you're going to get the same kinds of things that Jesus got. And the things that people said about Jesus while he was on earth were terrible. We're going to be treated the same way as Jesus was treated. In fact, he tells us in Luke 21, Mark 13, and Matthew 10, he says these great words, you will be hated. You will be hated. How is Jesus hated? Let me just give you a sprinkling here. John 8, 41 Jesus, in the midst of the group of people, was said, who are you to talk to us? We were not born of fornication. Do I have to tell you what they're calling Jesus at that point? I don't think so. You're an illegitimate child. We know your daddy isn't your daddy. Or if he is your daddy, they weren't married. Matthew eleven eighteen and 19, Jesus is called a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Some of the times he gets that called to his face. Other times he gets it called behind his back. Matthew nine thirty four, Jesus is called a demon-possessed man. He casts out demons by the prince of demons, they said. 
all these miracles he's doing of casting out these demons, he's doing it by Satan. John 8, 48, you are a Samaritan and have a demon. John 10, 20, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? So he gets called a crazy man. John 9, 16, on and on the slanders go. This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Sabbath breaker. John 9, 24, this man is a sinner. Mark 3, 21, this man is out of his mind. Matthew 27, 42, he saved others. He can't save himself. And Jesus tells us that if we follow him, we're going to get it worse. Listen to Matthew 10, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebul, the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? How much more will they malign those of his household? We're going to get it worse if we follow him. And you say, I don't really get maligned all that much. I don't, I mean, I don't understand why he's saying this. Well, at the time, Peter's readers weren't getting it all that much. I mean, they were beginning to get it, but he, he wouldn't have to tell them to prepare for more of it if they were getting everything they were going to get. He says, though, since, since Christ suffered in the flesh, his life wasn't easy. He suffered in the body. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now you ask yourself, why is it, as I asked myself this week, why is it that I'm not maligned more than I am? And that, that maligning can be a, a, to a greater or lesser degree. But here's Peter's point, and we're going to see it. To the degree that you live a life that is contrary to the culture, by way, and I'm not talking about contrary to the culture by some silly, unbiblical way of thinking or behaving. I'm talking about to the degree that you follow in the steps of Jesus as defined by the Bible, not as defined by what you think is following in the steps of Jesus, but following in the steps of Jesus as defined by the Bible, we will be maligned. We will be ridiculed. We will have said Set, had things say, said about us that are not true or that if they are true are misjudged and misunderstood. Because Jesus is, or Peter's point here in verse one is that Christ suffered, arm yourselves for suffering for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There's where we get our suffering from. We suffer because we don't live in patterns and consistent behavior that's marked as sinning. We don't live out the way we want to live. We live under the lordship of Christ. And as we live under the lordship of Christ, that way of life leads us into a way that runs countercultural, swimming upstream, and will bring maligning and abuse. So the first point is to be ready for suffering. Here's the second point. Be resistant to sinning. Be resistant to sinning. Now, why are we going to be treated this way? Peter makes it clear in verse 2 that it's our changed life that will bring about the abuse. We have ceased from sin. 
Now, what's that phrase mean? We have ceased from sin. Well, it obviously doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that at no point does any sin, do we commit any sin. The Bible repeatedly says, and like for example, 1 John 1, 8, that if we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. So it's not talking about that. What it's talking about is that at conversion, we made a decisive break with our former sinful pattern of life. You've heard it said, we stopped living in sin even though sin still lives in us. There's a world of difference between those two things, of, of sin living in you and you living in sin. He says in verse four that we don't join with others in their sin. We no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. Tom Schreiner writes this. The point of this phrase, cease from sin, is not that believers who suffer have no sin living in them, but that the commitment to suffer is evidence that they are no longer living in sin. What Peter emphasizes is that those who commit themselves to suffer, those who willingly endure scorn and mockery for their faith, show that they have triumphed over sin. They have broken with sin because they have ceased to participate in the lawless activities of unbelievers and endured the criticisms that come from such a decision. Now the question is, how did we come to make this clean break with sin? Well, we heard the gospel. Peter says that in verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached. And we'll get to that phrase a little bit later. But we heard the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, Peter gives two great summaries of the gospel in this letter. I already read one of them, verse 18 of chapter three. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So there it is. There's a summary of the gospel. Christ died as the righteous person, the one who didn't have any sin, for the unrighteous people who did have sin. Why? So that he might bring us to God. There's one part. Check out 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. I mean, this, this, it doesn't get any plainer than statements like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why did Jesus die on the tree, the righteous for the unrighteous? To bring us to God, yes, but more. So that we might die to sin. There it is, cease from sin. And live to righteousness. Jesus died that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And we've got people who claim to be Christians in our community that live completely contrary to that. They're not brought to God. They don't have any daily ongoing relationship with God. They don't die to sin in their daily lives. They do some of the very things that we're going to read about and call themselves Christians. That's an offense to Christ in the name of Christ. Amen. That people can say that. How blind do you have to be? 
How deaf to the Bible to convince yourself that you don't have to die to sin to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to become a Christian. I'm sorry I get a little worked up about this, but I deal with this all the time. I look people right in the face who do the things that this text condemns as non-Christian and call themselves Christian. Live in it. Just live in it. It's a little bit fresh on me because I was talking to somebody just this morning. Exchanging text. So the point is, is we came to make a clean break with sin by coming to Jesus, having our sins forgiven and realizing that when Jesus, when we come to Jesus, the effects of his death work in us and we find our habits beginning to break and sin becoming no longer our master, but now and our, us its servant, but rather Jesus is our master and the tr we've triumphed over sin. The power has broken. The slavery is gone. And we are now free to live a life of righteousness toward God. A heart that's in love with God cannot be in love with anti-God. And that's what Jesus's death does is that through coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, receiving Christ, that anti-God is killed in us. The power is killed. So how do we respond to this grace? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, the love of Christ constrains us to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. In other words, we no longer live for human passions before the will of God. That's what the love of Christ constrains a person to do. So if a person is unconcerned about living a life that is no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them, how can we possibly say that Jesus is loving that person? When it's the love of Christ that constrains a person to behave that way. So let me, let me, let me give some words of application here to us. First of all, to those of us who are, who are saved as adults, who are saved later in our lives, I just want to read verse 2. Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest of your days on earth, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, that is unbelievers, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, let me say some words of application, like I said, to first of all, those who are saved as adults. All of us brought old patterns of sin into our new life with Christ. But because we are united with Christ, gospel power is at work in us by the power of the Spirit to make a clean break with sin. 
and we are no longer enslaved. We don't have to keep indulging those same lusts, yielding to the same temptations. There's a new governing principle at work in our lives, and we're called to live for the will of God. So just remember, Peter is writing to us who are saved later that, look, the time that you spent in the past in sin, that suffices. That's done. It's finished. Okay? Now, devote the rest of your time living in, in, the, in the flesh. That is not, he's not talking about sinful flesh here. He's just talking about body. The rest of your time in the body, live it for the will of God. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. But those who are saved as children, what about you all? Who haven't maybe encountered all of these things that Peter's been talking about. If Christ mercifully rescued you, and he has several of you in this room, from the misery of enslavement to sin in your youth, don't waste your life looking back over your shoulder wondering if you missed something. Don't waste your life wondering that you missed something. You know what? You did miss something. You missed something. You missed misery. You missed habitual patterns that will prolong into adulthood and affect your marriage and your children. You missed out on failing to glorify God. If you would have lived in that pattern, you missed out on fellowship, you would have missed out on greater fellowship with Christ. You would have missed out on eternal reward. You missed out on all that. You didn't miss anything, okay? You're not going to miss anything. And every believer in this room would tell you that. Sin destroys. It doesn't satisfy. Sin brings death, not happiness. Oh, it brings happiness short term. Sin's not worthy of our devotion, affections, or commitment. Only Jesus is. So spend the rest of your time on earth dedicated to making much of Christ by living for, your, living for him and not for yourself. That's what I would say to you, those of you who were saved as children and are still relatively young. But what about those who think they're saved but probably aren't? I've already addressed you. I wanna say that if you came into this room as a Christian or you're hearing this message as a, and you claim to be a Christian, you claim to be a Christian, but your life reveals that you are dominated by human passions and not the will of God, that you are dominated by living in sensuality, that you are dominated, that no one ever critiques your way of life because you join in the same patterns of behavior as everybody else around you. And that in no way could it say that your life has made a decisive break with sin. Then I would just humbly ask you to please stop calling yourself a Christian until you become one. Please. Our cause is not being helped by your behavior. So until you want to become, if you want to become a Christian, that's great. But please don't call yourself one when you don't live like one. And I'm not saying that as somebody who's arrived or judging you. I'm saying that because the Bible says. And we want to define Christian biblically in this church. We want to make sure that what we mean by Christian 
is what the Bible means by Christian and not what our culture tells us a Christian is, which is not a Muslim. Okay? So, we as God's people are to be resistant to sinning. That's Peter's clear point in verses three and four. We're not to live for human passions, but we're to live for the will of God. We're to live out the rest of our days for Christ's will. And with respect to this, verse four, Peter tells us what we're gonna get. They are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The first thing that's gonna happen is people are gonna think we're weird. They're gonna be surprised. They're gonna be like, you don't do what? You don't, why, what? What's the big deal about that? They're, you're gonna be weird to some people. They aren't gonna get you. You aren't gonna fit into a particular category for them because you're not gonna be this self-righteous person who's always talking down to other people. You're gonna be a humbled, godly person and they don't have any categories for that. They have categories for self-righteous people who like to holy Bible thump people and they have categories for unrighteous people who live the way they want. They don't have categories for a Christian. They're going to try to put you in one of those two categories. You're going to be weird because they can't understand it. I was just interacting with a friend this morning, a good, good friend, one of my best friends from, from middle school and high school. We've talked about the Lord, talked about Jesus a lot. And, uh, he was, he was texting me back and forth and he said, um, you know what? I heard that you're having a, another baby. And I said, yeah, do May 29. And I said, he said, Jesus has really blessed you, brother. And I said, yes, I have, and I deserve none of it. And he said, yes, you do. You deserve everything you've ever gotten from him. You've lived for him. And I had to say, no. See, that we, that people don't have categories for that. They don't have categories for unmerited blessing. Not because of what you do, but that's exactly what Jesus does. So it's just, I want to put you into the moral category. You know, you've gotten God's blessing because you've been good. People don't have categories for grace. And they just don't get it. Because we don't, we're not all, I mean, yes, we care about morality. Peter cares about morality, but morality is not the church's main goal. We care about how we live, of course. Peter tells us to behave a certain way. He calls certain behavior sin and certain behavior righteousness. Yes, yes, yes. But that's not our message. Our message is not, be a good person. God will love you. Good people are great, aren't they? Come on into the good church where we can make you good by your own self-determined effort to resist sin. No. It's come meet Jesus, have him wreck and change your life. That's the, that's the message. Come meet Jesus who will give you a purpose beyond being a good person. Because if that's our message, it's, it's self-glory, church. Come on, be a good person so everybody will think you're a good person. Where's Jesus in all that? 
Jesus gets the glory if Jesus is kept central and Jesus is the reason that your life changed. And Peter knows that, that Jesus is the reason that their life changed. And he says, people are going to malign you. They're going to be surprised that you don't join with them in the passion, drunken, orgy, drinking, lawless idolatry that they behave in, in sensuality. And they will malign you. And Jesus said, this is the reason that people would malign us in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I mean, Jesus is just really clear here, right? The reason you're hated by the world is because you don't look like the world. You don't behave like the world. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, John 15, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So when we make a decisive change in priorities that affects our lifestyle, people notice. They don't understand why we no longer join in the fun. They view it as strange, confusing, and mildly threatening. They feel condemned by your refusal to join in their sinful pleasure. And sometimes they respond with hostility. Not all the time. Sometimes just like, well, do your thing, man. But sometimes it's hostile. Sometimes it's going to get you called things. It's gotten me called things. I'm sure it's gotten you called things if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. They'll call you self-righteous. You think you're better than us? You think you're better than us, don't you? And it has nothing to do with being better than you. No, I'm worse than you if you only knew my heart. Because you don't laugh at the things they laugh at. Or they accuse you, and this is going to become more common even in our own community, I believe. They'll accuse you of not caring for women because you're not pro-choice. Or they'll judge you because you can't approve of your family member who abandoned his wife for another woman. Don't you know God wants us to be happy? They'll mock you as old-fashioned because of your sexual ethics. I mean, get with the times, man. I mean, you really, like didn't date. I mean, we've had some young guys in this church get some serious abuse for that because they've stood up for righteousness. And they said, you know what? It, yeah, well, keep, keep living your easy life, dude. They ridicule us as narrow-minded or intolerant because we actually believe all this stuff. I mean, we live in the 21st century and, we, and I'm right now preaching out of this old book like it's got something to say to us. I mean, don't you realize we've made some progress, Mark? I mean, we've learned some things over the years. I mean, all that stuff, listen to that. Sounds Puritan. I mean, get real. You actually believe that there was a man named Jesus who was not just man, but also God, supernaturally born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, who lived an absolutely sinless and perfect life and died on a cross, bled as a substitute and then rose from the dead. And you believe that unless people receive him, they're not going to, to heaven? I mean, what kind of nutso person are you? You're the reason this culture is in the condition it's in because of that kind of narrow way of thinking. And as long as you keep carrying that narrow way of thinking around, you're going to propagate prejudice and racism. 
I mean, this is the kind of stuff we're going to hear. And Peter says, get ready for it. And don't let it change your behavior. Unless you don't want to suffer. But don't let it change your behavior. We must arm ourselves with a readiness to suffer this kind of abuse from unbelievers and consider it a privilege to get that kind of abuse. Because the Bible says it's a privilege. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when men revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you for your reward is great in heaven. I mean, you know what this kind of abuse got the apostles and how they responded? They ran out and said, yeah, that's what they did. They ran out of there and said, oh, that we're counted worthy to suffer for his name. Oh, that we would be that we would live, that we would have, we would receive Jesus and his grace so powerfully into our lives and have our lives so changed that we'd actually get what he got. That's unreal. Sorry about that jump over there. I've never done that before. That's kind of cool. Still got hops. But the old knees are feeling it. Our lives are distinct enough for others to see a difference. Rather than blend in, we should embrace these opportunities to stand out as salt and light in a wicked world because to the degree that we blend in is to the degree we lose influence. We must not blend in. We must not blend in. We must hold humbly to Jesus and walk with him through the suffering, but not change on account of the suffering. These are the opportunities that Christ has given us to bear witness. So last point. We are to be ready for suffering. We are to be resistant to sinning. And the big question is how? Under what power will we be able to live out this call to be this radically distinct people who no longer live for human passions but for the will of God? The answer is in verses 5 and 6. The power comes from being reminded of our salvation, from being reminded of what's going to happen to us, not just in this life, but in the life to come as a result of our faithfulness. So what will help us to stand up in the face of misunderstanding, ridicule, and enable us to keep loving people and doing good to those who mistreat us? Because that's our call. Our call is not to remove ourselves from them. Our call is not to, to fight back. That, I mean, don't do that. You've missed the point of the letter if you start behaving that way when you start suffering. It's not to get self-defensive. The answer is do good to those who harm you. Bless those who curse you. Remember, that's what we spent a month on was that ethic that runs right through Peter of doing good in the face of evil. So we're to positively respond. We're to pray for them. We're to love them. We're to serve them. We're to show concern for them, even as... We are a rock in their shoe. The answer to where we get the power from is by being reminded of our coming salvation. Peter says, they, talking about those who malign us, verse five, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Everyone who says anything to Christians, maligns them, fights against them. If they are not converted, which some of them get converted, see Apostle Paul, <laughs> okay? Some people who malign Christians and persecute Christians become Christians. And that's great. It's fantastic. Maybe some of you are in the room. Before Christ, you just hated Christians. Just hated them. Got on your nerves. 
called them names, and then you became one. You're like, wait, how did that happen? I've become what I hate. That's great. But Peter, Peter says, look, they're going to give an account to Jesus one day, and that account will be settled by him. So entrust yourself to him who judges justly, Christians. They who malign us now will give an account to him and they will answer to Jesus for how they've treated him and his people. This is why Peter reminds us in verse, verse six that the believers who have died in Christ are not really dead. This is sort of a confusing verse, but I think it's easier to understand once you... Uh, understand the context, but verse six says, for this, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now he's talking about those who are dead now. The gospel doesn't get preached to people who are like already dead and then they go and then the gospel gets preached to them. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about previous believers who have already died. He says, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, dead Christians, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, in other words, that though they were maligned and mistreated, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What's his point? His point is that even though there are some Christians who have been maligned and are dead now, they're in heaven with Jesus. That's his point. They're not dead. See, people could have been telling the believers, see, you say you have good news, right? You say you've got this good news, this gospel. You say that you escape judgment. Well, you say that you have an eternal inheritance, that God loves you. But look at all you miss out on, and then in the end, you're going to die just like everybody else. Look, so where's that? Look, it's just like, see, it's just like a coping mechanism for this life. It has nothing to do with later. And Peter says, no, it has everything to do with later. That's what Peter's point is. He says, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead now, that though they were judged in the flesh, that is, they were judged by people, they now live in the spirit the way God does. They live with God in heaven. So God's assessment of those Christians was different than the world's assessment of those Christians. And that's Peter's point. God's assessment was, those are my people. They're coming with me. The inheritance that I promised in chapter one that was kept in heaven for them, that's unfading, I'm giving it to them right now. They, though they were judged in the flesh, live in the spirit. So Peter tells the Christians, no, they didn't die like everyone else. They died, yes, but the gospel was preached to them and they believed it. And even though it looks like they died like everyone else, they haven't. They're alive in the spirit, living with the Lord, and the sufferings they experienced are not worth comparing with the glory that's being revealed to them right now. So we will suffer if we follow Christ faithfully, but our suffering is temporary. Our suffering is temporary. The day is coming when the judge of heaven and earth will eternally reward those who have trusted in Christ and will eternally punish those who have rejected Christ. Peter reminds us of this in chapter 5 where he says, chapter five, verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. There's our hope. There's our hope. 
after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace has called you, who has called you to his eternal glory will take care of you. And that's our hope, brothers and sisters. We need to be ready for suffering, perhaps more now than we ever have been. We need to be resistant to sin in the midst of our suffering. And we'll do that by being reminded of our salvation to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, this timely word to us this morning, which reminds us of the cost of following Jesus and at the same time, the great promises that come to us as we do follow Jesus. Father, there are a lot of us who have been Peters in this room. We have wimped out. We have not stood our ground. We thank you that there's forgiveness and restoration with you. The whole point of Peter writing this letter is evidence of your grace in his life. It's evidence that you're a God who forgives, who forgives denial, who forgives betrayal, and who restores. Thank you for what you did in Peter's life, Lord Jesus. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. Help us to stand for you. In Jesus' name, amen.